Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you're encouraged and challenged as you listen to it. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. We are in John 5 today. Um, if you haven't got one of these and you would like one, there are some just at the desk there. I don't mind you moving. You can go and grab one and there are pens. We want to offer these to people. Um, they are a Gospel of John with notes. I have made my own notes um, in them. We encourage you. We want you to be people of the Word. We want you to read the Word. And um, some people find this helpful. We've talked about where to put it. Some people have said put it in your toilet because you definitely use your toilet. And a page isn't a long thing to read. But Sammy put a, a much better idea in, which is if you um, have kids and if you do school runs and if you're waiting for clubs, stick it in your car. It'll give you an opportunity just to, just to read the word. Write down any questions you have from this week's uh, preparation. I have a question for Luke, and I hope that uh, he will answer it. We want your questions. Write them down. Send them to us. Uh, we want to hear what it is that, that, you, that you are getting out of, out of this word. And so we are in, in John 5, and we are in two parts this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 to 15, and then we're going to be looking at 16 to 30. But these are not to be looked at in isolation. Scripture is never to be looked at in isolation. It's all one story. And what we need to do is keep in mind as we're looking through this, that this is all one story. Um, and in John, we read a lot about miracles. Like he talks about miracles, but he often uses the word signs. And um, the idea is that actually a sign in and of itself is not the point. And we'll read this next uh, in the next chapter as well. I won't preempt what Luke is saying, but in in, uh, in Luke 6, it talks about how Jesus, let me see if I've got, let me see if I've done my research. Yes, he says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And he's kind of challenging people. He's saying, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the sign as being the thing, but the sign is meant to point to something. And so today we're looking at what those signs are pointing to. So last week we, we read about signs and wonders. Jesus spoke to a woman at the well and he opened her eyes. And um, we're going to look at, at two things. We're going to look at the intentionality of Christ and the identity of Christ. And so these are the two things that we're looking at. So if you write notes, write your notes. The intentionality of Christ and the identity of Christ. Jesus was intentional in everything he did. We've already read up to this point how Jesus chose his 12 disciples. He goes to the wedding and performs his first miracle, his first sign by turning the water into wine. He intentionally met Nicodemus and teaches this old Jewish, well-educated man about how salvation can only happen through the Son of Man. We're going to be touching on that. Um, a title Jesus calling himself. Luke spoke about this. Love the podcast. Love the podcast. I'm going to keep saying it. I love the podcast. We have a podcast. Go back and listen. Luke speaks about Nicodemus a couple of weeks ago. We see he intentionally walks through Samaria. Last, last week, um, uh, we were told, Neil told us about how that's not the way that the Jewish people would have usually gone, is right through the middle of Samaria. But he did that to intentionally meet the woman at the well who becomes the first recorded person to talk to others about the Messiah. Jesus is an intentional person, and he is intentionally here. And so I'm going to pray, and my prayer is that we keep in mind these things today, is that Scripture needs to not be read in isolation, that Jesus is intentional, and we're going to be reading about Jesus' identity. Lord, we need you this morning. 
We cannot do this without you. Lord, all the words that have been written or spoken mean nothing unless you reveal to us who you are. And so I ask that revelation would come today for us, Lord, in many different ways for, for different people in different seasons because you are a living God who speaks to us where we are in our circumstances, in our situations. And I pray today that through your scripture, you would speak to us intentionally about who you are. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read scripture. If you've got one of these, you can read along with me because I'm taking it out of this. I'm also putting it on the screen. Cover all bases. Helps. It says this, verses 1 to 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and at which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So we're looking at the intentionality of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a similarity with how this story we've just read and last, last week's story happened. Jesus is really specific in how and what he does. There would have been many, many people around the pool uh, that day because it would have, would have been a pool where as people were coming down to the festival, they had to be made ritually clean. And so they would have gone into these special pools and they would have washed themselves. And also at this pool, there was this belief, and we, I can't guarantee that it's a yes or a no, there was this idea that when the water stirred, that, that if you went into the water, if you were the first person into the water at that point, you would be made well. And so invalids and blind people and, and people with physical ailments and different ailments would wait around the pool for them, the waters to stir and for them to go in. So this was a really busy place. And for some reason, Jesus chooses this one man. Of all the people, Jesus chooses this one man. And he walks over to him and he asks what could potentially be a really silly question. Do you want to get well? Like, think about it. Like, sometimes when we read scripture, we don't actually think about what's being said. It's just like, oh, it's scripture, so i got to... Let's just think, do you want to get well? 38 years he was disabled for. Do you think he wants to get well? Like, it's a strange question, but the whole reason that this guy was there was to get healed. 38 years he'd been afflicted for, and he said that no one was there to help me. Do you want to get well? Like, if you were that bloke, like, the way that he responds is quite holy because we read it in scripture. But I would have been like, yeah. Like, that's basically what he's saying in modern day language. Yeah. I've, I've been like this for 38 years. What do you think? But the reason that I think is, it's, it, when we're reading it, we've got to remember that, that Jesus is opening an invitation. 
by asking that question. He's opening a conversation with somebody. He's engaging in relationship with the woman at the well. He says, the same thing happened. Can I have a cup of water? He just asks the question. He's by a well. He wants water. Like, it seems like just a really obvious question, but it's because Jesus is engaging. He's intentional about engaging with the person where they're at. It may seem really odd and really obvious questions, but they are super intentional. When you read in scripture, I do this all the try, time. I try and, if Jesus asks a question, I try to put the answer in a way that I would answer it. And sometimes my answer's like, yeah, duh. Like, just, just think about scripture as if you're reading it. Don't just like, it's a holy book and we believe it, but Jesus wants us to get stuff out of it. There are so many stories about, we read about, when Jesus is asking these questions and he's meeting with these people that they don't recognize who he is straight away. Like the woman at the well doesn't know who he is and, and this guy doesn't know who Jesus is. And again, like, it, it, just think about the scripture. Like, why is, why is Jesus doing that? Why, why, when he could reveal who he is straight away, why doesn't he do that? And I think it's because Jesus wants to engage in the relationship with us. He wants us to be a part of the conversation. He doesn't want us to be a bystander while he does stuff. His real desire, the reason that Jesus came was for a relationship. And I think I have this feeling, you know, when, when you have those times when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, nice to see you. And like, if you know me, you know I'm the worst at this. Because the problem is, is that when you've done enough events in South Wales, everyone in South Wales knows who you are. And you don't know who anyone is, but you've met them several times. And somebody comes up to you and goes, hey, it's nice to see you. And you have that kind of familiar feeling. You're like, it's, there's an immediate of a familiar feeling with that person. And I think meeting Jesus would have been like that. There would have been a familiarity with him that as he spoke to these people, that they would have just had that kind of, I know this person, or, if, or I know who this person is. But I think the only thing that wouldn't have happened is, you know, you have that slight panic and you get the cold sweats because you can't remember their name. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened because that happens to me all the time. But I'm almost positive that when Jesus was meeting with people on the road uh, to um, oh, Emmaus, thank you, on the road to Emmaus, all of these people didn't recognize who Jesus was, but I think there would have been a familiarity with him. So can I ask you, is there in your life, are there moments when there is a familiarity that in your life that Jesus is engaging in a conversation with you and he's not gone any further with the conversation because he needs you to engage? intentionally there are these moments that God would want to speak to us whilst he was here on earth he was really intentional about everything he did and everything he did was pointing towards something these signs and wonders weren't just for the sake in and of themselves they were pointing towards something else that one thing so you can write it down, is salvation through Christ. So I have, a, I have a question for Luke about this passage. Here's my question. And he can listen back to this and he can think about his answer. Verse 16 um, says this. I think it's, it comes up, verse 16. I can't remember. Maybe. Aha, yes. So this is what it says in verse 16. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, hang on a minute, I have skipped ahead of myself. I'm really sorry, everyone. Sorry, verse 14, let's go back a little bit. Let's just come back a little bit. 
Verse 14 says this, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, I see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the men went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, here's my question for Luke. Why did Jesus choose to go back to him at that point? So he'd made him well, he'd healed him, and he had he told him, you know, take up your mat, walk, you're good. Why did Jesus return? What was the purpose? So I've got two theories. One is, because actually the reality was, and we've talked about this, it wasn't about the fact that he got well. He says to him, please stop sinning, otherwise worse may happen to you. Now, I don't want to get into the theology of this, but the idea is is that it wasn't about whether or not he was healed. It was the fact that it was Christ who made him well and wanted him to enter into a relationship with him. That was the point. Or did Jesus come back because actually he was setting up for this next point and he wanted the religious leaders to hear about him? So he was like, I could have told this man at the well, go and sin no more, like he did with the woman. He said to her at the well, he was like, go away and sin no more. He didn't do it there. He chose to go to the temple when the religious leaders were there. And at that point, he said to the man, go and sin no more. And so then he was identifiable in a place that would have been very dangerous for Jesus. Why did he do it? Which one was it? Luke. Luke is the pastor of Cap City, if you don't know. I'm just screaming someone's name. He answers every question. It's nuts. We have fun. I wind him up. It's pretty funny. Um, but which one was it? Why did he, cho- why did he choose? Was it- which reason was it? To engage more in the relationship with the man or because he needed to be in the temple? So this brings me to my next point. John 5, 16 to 30. So 16 to 18 says this. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I just want to clarify something. It seems strange in our context, this idea that that, you know, it'd be weird that just on this specific day, this man who's been unable to walk for 38 years is now walking with his mat. And the only thing that the religious leaders can say to him is, why are you carrying your mat? It's an, it's an odd thing in our context. Like, I think Christians, we get it. It's like, oh, it's the Sabbath. But actually, if we think about it, what does it mean? What does it mean? Why is it so important to them that they're not doing it on the Sabbath? So if we go back to Exodus 28 to 11, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, what happened over time is that, is that from Israel, where, where that creed was kind of uh, put down, that instruction was put down, all the way through to the time that we're reading in now, what had happened was this instruction had become so strict that what the religious leaders had done in trying to keep the law, they'd added all this other stuff to it. 
So anything that was done on the Sabbath was considered sinful. And they'd gone to the point where they'd missed, they'd missed the point of the original, um, the original command. Because again, think about it. Do you think that God needs to rest? Think about it. God doesn't need to rest. God wants to rest because he wants to build relationship with us. It says, in, it says in Genesis how they saw it was good and they wanted to bask in the goodness of it. Sabbath isn't about doing nothing. Sabbath is about engaging in relationship in the joy, fulfillment of God in a restful way. For me, that's watching sport. I engage Jesus in watching sport with me because I love sport so much. And it makes me feel better. But the reality is that I could do that. I can. Because God doesn't need to rest. He just wants us to set aside time for him. And so it's a strange thing that they say, why have you picked up your mat? Because they lost the reason for the Sabbath, which was to engage in relationship with God. And what happens is that Jesus defends what he's done. He doesn't just answer it. It says he defends what he's done. And in verse 19 on, it says this, Jesus gave them an answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he pleases, pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, we're still reading scripture. Keep engaging, guys. It's difficult, but, but stay with me. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and... And my judgment is just, for I seek not just to please myself, but him who sent me. We are talking about the identity of Christ. This passage is deep. I am not going to be able to do it justice in the time that I have. This passage is dense, but it speaks to us about the identity of Jesus. And guys, this is why I'm a Christian. Because Jesus claims to be and says he is who he is, the Son of God. That is important. The religious leaders are furious at Jesus. He sets himself, almost sticking himself on his own cross just with this statement. 
because the religious leaders are furious. This defense, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Right here in this passage, he nails his colors to the post. I am equal with the father. What kind of defense makes the authority of the day want to kill you and persecute you more? Think about it. Usually, a defense seeks to exonerate you. Jesus isn't going, no, 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 I'm I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. Jesus is clear. He is saying, I am who I am, pretty much. The reason that this is his defense is because it's the truth. Truth is important. This passage is difficult to follow, but Jesus is sharing with us who he is. Not just what he does, but who he is. So we're going to do a little Trinity lesson. If you'd like to, like to draw little, little diagrams, there's going to be a diagram for you. So the first, the first of the Trinity lessons is this, is the economy of the Trinity. This is the, the separate and togetherness of the Trinity. They are, they are three in one. Okay, and where we first read about this is in Genesis. And I haven't got it up here, but I was thinking about this this morning, and I was like, this is a perfect example of this three in one. Genesis 1. If you've got a Bible, if you want to flick to it or scan to it or whatever it is you do. You know that thing where you like up and down with your, with your finger on your iPad, whatever that is. You know, when you're like, swipe, swipe, that's the word. Either swipe to it or go to it. Genesis 1. I'm just going to do a whistle-stop tour of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to talk about that. And he said he called it day and night. He called it night and there was evening and there was morning. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it goes on to say, then God called the expanse heaven in verse 8. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding. Verse 14, then God said, let there be light. Verse 17, God placed them in the expanse of the heavens and gave the light on the earth. God saw that it was good. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters team and swim. A bit further down, just before 22, God saw that it was good. God blessed them. 24, then God said. 26, then God said, let us. Singular and plural, all together. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Us. There is a togetherness and a separateness of the Trinity. They are three in one. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Yes. But then we have this other one, the utility of the Trinity, which is the purpose of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. So it was not the Father who came down to take the form of man, but God did. Stay with me. I know it's hard. The Spirit did not come down to take the form of man, but God did. In the creation story, it says that the Spirit was hovering over the darkness. Jesus wasn't, but God 
was. Now, the reality of this is that I cannot explain it to you in a way where you will fully understand it. This is called the mystery and the wonder of God. This is the idea that we can only see through a glass dimly. We will not have full revelation until we are with Christ. And so sometimes we've got to sit in the awkwardness of not knowing, but believing what we're reading. That's what faith is. Faith is not always knowing everything, but believing what we're reading. The Trinity are perfectly in one unity and very differently distinct in nature. That is the best way I can explain the Trinity to you in the revelation that God has given me now. And I'm pretty sure that at some point in the future, it'll feel different and I'll have other words because God is revealing as he's going along. I know it's difficult to understand, but when Jesus is talking in this passage, this is what he's referring to. He's talking about being one with God. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of humanity that was lost with Adam, and he came to show the perfect and only way to the Father. We read it in verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I wrote down, thank God for Jesus, because if it wasn't for him, we'd be stuffed. We'd be absolutely stuffed. Because is this saying that, that God, the Father, doesn't judge? No, it's not saying that. It's saying that the distinct nature of Jesus in order for us to have a relationship with him is that he has given all judgment to the Son. The Old Testament rules were because we didn't have the Son yet and so God was trying to make a way to relationship that we kept messing up. Knowing then that the only way was that judgment had to sit with the Son so that for us to get to the Father and to get to God would mean that we would have to go through Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father. That's a difficult message in this pluralistic society. This idea that, no, there's loads of ways and the God of wonder and, and this. I, I, the Christian message is this. Jesus is the only way to the Father. The humblest statement a Christian can make will come across as the most arrogant in this world. You can only know God the Father if you go through Christ the Son. That is a humble statement for Christians to make and you will be called arrogant for making it. You are not arrogant. It's the truth. God judges through the lens of the sun, and it is through the sun that we find our salvation. The judgment we truly deserve is that of God the Father, but in his grace, he uses the lens of the sun who took our sin and shame so that we may be called holy and blameless. And so for the man at, the, uh, at Bethesda, God heals him not for the sake of heal, healing him, so, that, so he can say to him, come and have a relationship with me and don't sin anymore because I, w- I need you to be holy and blameless. I want you to engage in this relationship. You have a way to the Father through me. Part of my story this year has been about these two doors, and I'll talk about it probably more and more, and some of you would have heard it last week at a conference I was at. But I remember even in this last year, just 
just knowing that I was meant to be going through one door and knowing the other door wasn't right for me. And I was arguing with God and I was saying, God, what if I go through this door? What if I choose this way? It's easy. I can stay in my bed on a, on a, on a Sunday. I can watch all the sport I want on Saturday night because I love NFL and it goes on till about 4 a.m. But I can do that. I don't have to like mess up with my week. I don't have to spend time studying your word. I can do whatever I want. Why can't I go through this way? And it was as that... As I was just arguing and being frustrated, in my mind's eye, as I looked at it, I saw this door and realized it was being held open by Jesus. Jesus, in his mercy, was holding that door open for me. And in that time, he said to me, he said, Abby, if you go through that door, I will follow you. And not because I'm going to condone all that you do, and not because it makes it okay, but because when you realize, when you turn around and realize, I'm going to be the first to welcome you home. You are not going to receive the judgment that you deserve because I have paid the way. The prodigal son is that story. And in this passage, if you've read the prodigal son story, in this passage, the, the, the religious leaders are the older brother. God is saying, Jesus is saying to them, you could have everything. It was so, um, as far as they were concerned, it was so sacrilegious what Jesus was saying putting himself on the same level as God. It was so bad. They were furious at him but because they were missing the point. They loved God, but they were missing the point. They would say that they were the most um, fervorous about their religion. They were the ones who loved God the most. They were the ones who were doing everything, but they were missing the point because Christ had come to do away with it. And he was saying, come into the party. I'm inviting you in. And they were refusing. And I think we're always somewhere as people on that line we're either the one who's saying I'm going to go through this door and I'm going to do whatever I like or we're becoming so religious that we're forgetting that it's Christ who has done it all for us we become judgmental in this corner and we become full of judgment in this corner God is calling us to this way that that it comes through Christ in this passage The identity of Christ. That man wasn't being healed because it was the best thing for him. The man was being healed as a sign to say, go and sin no more. Pointing to salvation. This is the point of the Christian message. One that's difficult to share. It sounds arrogant. But it is only through Jesus that we find salvation in God. Because the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge and has said, it is only by me that you can be saved. Humblest witness. Jesus is the only way. Becomes the most arrogant statement for people. There's a cost in sharing that statement. There is a cost. You are not popular by sharing that statement. But I would encourage you that that this is the statement of truth, but we share it through grace. It says in in, uh, Acts that when, it's, it's just a little phrase that I just remember over and over again. It says, when Peter preached, God opened Lydia's eyes. It is for us to say the truth. God will defend himself, but we must speak the truth. And God will open the eyes of people. You are not there to argue. 
You don't have to defend yourself. You've just got to stand firm in the truth that Jesus Christ came to die and to rise again so that we could be saved and be one with the Father. There is your truth. People will not like you for it. It's a difficult message. It's easy to say in the confines of a church, but I'm thinking to myself, I've now preached this. I absolutely know for a fact that at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking to somebody about it. They're going to hate it. You just know it's going to happen. And I'm like, God, how do I do this? Like, I'm quite an aggressive person, generally. (laughs) God's changing me, but I can be quite an aggressive person. I sit on the front foot. I expect arguments back, and God is saying, I will defend myself. Just speak the truth. This is the truth of my salvation. Just read it again. Moreover, uh, verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. There's another phrase that keeps coming up to me. I love it. It's, sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. You cannot get better and then come out of sin. Sin is death. And the only way to come out of sin is to find the one that will make you alive again. Jesus. You cannot get better by yourself. It is not possible. And it's this whole passage starts off with Jesus engaging in relationship. And so we've, we've done this thing over years and years of Christianity. We were saying to people, you've got to get better and then you can engage. That makes no sense. The church has done a disservice. They, they've done what these religious leaders are doing. Stop carrying your mat because you're sinning. This man has just found life. And they're worried about a mat. We miss it sometimes. We get so caught up in in the way that we read Scripture or the way that we hear about it or the way that we sing. This is life. This is life. Christ is life. He has brought me from death to life because of what he did on the cross. Jesus is the only way to the Father. As a Christian today, our statement has to be, you can only be saved through Jesus. It's not a popular one, just like it wasn't back in Jesus' day. But it's true. And if you like reading around this stuff, C.S. Lewis writes a book called Mere Christianity, and he poses the question that he just popularized it. It'd been around for a while, but he says, if Christ Jesus is saying this, he can only be one of three things, a lunatic, a liar, or actually Lord. This whole passage is asking us the question. Jesus can't be a lunatic. And if he was a liar, he would have had to know way too much in order to fulfill all the prophecies that he'd fulfilled. And if, you want, if you're like, well, I don't know about all them, study it. I don't know all of them. I'm going to study it too. He couldn't have been a liar. So there's only one thing he can be. Who he claims to be, which is God. 
The question of who Jesus is, is for each of us. It's for each of us to make a personal response to. You cannot be carried by somebody else. Your brain cannot tell you one way or the other. You have to engage fully in the relationship that Christ has offered. He's not looking for an answer from the Bible or an answer that you can search on Google. Jesus demands a personal response from us. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Try and search for it on Google and get an answer that's good enough. Try and find somebody else that will give you an answer that you think is good enough. I promise you will not find an answer that satisfies because he's asking you, who do you say I am? What is my identity? Sin is, is so real and, and we can sometimes just quietly talk about it. But sin is real. And it is, is death. It is death for us. And the only reason that I can say that, that that is true is because there is a hope of a saviour who raises us from death to life. The, the word that, that is used for when Jesus died on the cross and rose again is propitiation, which means like a washing machine, it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Jesus, uh, I'm going to get the context wrong, but Jesus died for the propitiation of our sins, the ongoing washing of us. Sin doesn't make you bad, it makes you dead. And you have to find the one that can bring you back to life. Jesus, in John 5, is sharing exactly who he is, and it has put him on the cross already. But he does it because it's true. He does it because he is Lord. Because otherwise he has deceived millions of people for centuries. I just, it's not possible for me. And it's not possible for me because my brain tells me it's possible for me because I have been on a journey and chosen to engage with Jesus in it. And I know he's real. I know it. So we're going to respond. And I just, my prayer is just that as I've, as I've talked, Jesus has opened your eyes. Because I can't open them for you. I can help you. I can talk with you. We can answer questions. We can do all of that. But my imploring of you is go to Jesus. Because I will not be able to answer all of your questions. And faith is not about whether or not I can give you all the answers. My faith is that I believe that Jesus will meet with you where you're at. And I'm praying that that would happen. My faith is enough that I don't know what the next day will hold. And I'm not even sure that I know everything and that I'm okay to a certain extent. I'm still a fragile human being. But my faith says I'm going to keep, keep imploring Jesus because he's taken me from death to life. And I know of no one else who has done that. So let's respond. Oh, Jesus, we need you. 
All the words and all the explanations and all the healings in the world mean nothing if they do not point to you. And so we, we, we ask for your presence again and we, we know that you are, you are here when we gather and we know uh, that, you, uh, that you are in us and you are for us, but we ask, Lord, for the tangible presence of Jesus. In the reality of where we are, whether we are the woman at the well and, and, and have had a, had a life and are just really struggling or whether we're the man and there's, there's definitely a, a, a something that's going on that's, that's a healing. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would come to you and engage in the relationship as you're asking the question. Who do you say I am? And so I pray that our hearts would be open to you this morning. Lord, we wouldn't shut it away because it feels difficult or it's a little bit painful or we don't want to go back to our situations with an open heart to you, Lord. But I pray for courage in this room, for the bravery to open our hearts to you. Lord, for revelation from your throne of who you are. Because we, we need you. We need you. We need you, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.